Hi, Dr. Deanne Ross here. Thank you for joining me. Uh, it's really good to be with you today. I'm doing uh, a book from my bookshelf and it's called The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm, one of the most significant philosophers of the last century in the Western societies at least. The book is uh, was first published in 1956, and it's uh, been republished since that. And the, the version I've got is a soft uh, paperback, and uh, it's Harper Perennial's Modern Classics series. And just to give you a flavour for how his work is understood and received, I'll read a little bit from the back cover and the foreword. Um, and then I'm going to actually do a quite what's turned out to be quite a complex task of distilling from a very elaborate development of a theory and analysis of Western society um, and commentary about the practice of loving, try and distill some of the concepts that are really useful in my development of a theory of love. And um, while I haven't, haven't directly drawn from Fromm's work to the extent that I am now, his ideas are clearly influential, um, directly drawn upon by Bell Hawks, who is one of the most influential people in my thinking. Okay, so to give you a, a sense of some of the complexity, though, before I get into the, the commentary on, on others' views of him and the book itself, because of the historical time he wrote in, he uses language which isn't acceptable anymore. So I'm going to try as much as I can to speak either in a, um, a plural or a ter term rather than to speak in terms of he. Uh, it, it's a little complicated, therefore, so bear with me if there are slight pauses. There may also be pauses while I, while I move to another section to share it with you. So in the main, I'm going to refrain from my own comments, at least while I'm sharing his direct commentary, so that you get a feel for how he writes and thinks. All right, so let's go. So on the back of the, the softback version that I've got, it says the groundbreaking bestseller that has shown millions of readers how to achieve deep purpose and connection by developing their hidden capacities for love. Most people are unable to love on the only level that truly matters, love that is compounded by maturity, self-knowledge and courage. As with every art, love demands practice and concentration, as well as genuine insight and understanding. In his classic work, The Art of Loving, legendary philosopher Eric Fromm explores love in all its aspects, not only romantic love, steeped in false conceptions and lofty expectations, but also brotherly love, erotic love, self-love, love of God, and the love of parents for their children. A major work in the field of psychology, New York Times. Fromm's 1956 masterwork, The Art of Loving, makes a case for love as a school to be honed, enduringly excellent, explores the misconceptions and cultural falsehoods, keeping us from mastering the supreme human skill, outlining both its theory and its practice with extraordinary insight into the complexities of the human heart. This is Maria Popova uh, from Brain Pickings. Uh, 
there's some really useful material in the back of the, the book that the version of the book that I've got that gives you some insight into Eric Fromm's life. He grew up in Germany uh, before the, the Second World War and was deeply influenced by the rise of Nazism and was very troubled by authoritarianism. And he also critiques capitalism more generally. You know, in more general terms later in his writing but the this search for what matters to what it means to be human and how love matters um, in the face of authoritarian and extreme violence and annihilation was very much coming out of his his troubling around what he saw his his musing and his thinking through of how it could be different um, and so it is really interesting to read his autobiographical notes, but uh, just because there's so much that I want to try and fit into a short space, I won't go into that. But I do encourage you to to um, read that if you get hold of a copy of his book. Also, just to say that he's written in many other books. When you open the first couple of pages of the books, it, book it has a whole list of the kinds of books that, of, of the books that he's written, and one of the most famous would have been the Sane Society, and I think it's really an important book as well. Uh, what's What's incredibly interesting, if you run your eye down the list of books that he has published, um, how he he spans such an incredible area of diversity of thought and and actually uh, diversity of religions that he explores and draws influence from. Okay, so just um, to get a, a sense of how the book is laid out, because it may get a little bit um, fragmented in how I'm going to work with it, he, he begins by asking, is love an art? And actually comes to the answer that yes, it is. It's not a, a it's not a capacity we're born with. It's not a thing we possess. It's actually something we have to cultivate. Yeah. Um, he moves from that question of is it art to how he understands a theory of love, and he talks about love as the answer to the problem of human existence, especially in the context of extreme violence and annihilation of whole groups of people. Obviously, being a Jew himself, he was very, very aware of what was happening to the Jews in Nazi Germany. So he goes on to then identify the kinds of love that make up his theory of love. And he talks about love between parent and child and then talks about brotherly love, motherly love, erotic love, self-love and love of God. And I will absolutely not do those justice today, but just make some some indicative points really of what he's how he understands those ideas of love he goes on to have a whole section of his book titled love and its disintegration in contemporary western society and i don't go into that chapter on in any great extent uh, but it is really worth reading and he talks about the, almost the impossibility or at least the extreme difficulty of being loving in a way that is not narcissistic, not only self-referencing, but loving of others and not only loving of our immediate people in our lives, um, but also all others, um, all others uh, being how love is meant to be expressed, uh, not only for ourselves and our own advantage. Then the last section, which is shorter but very important, is some commentary by Fromm on the practice of love. And as he says, it's not a blueprint. It's not giving you this step and that step to do and then you'll, 
you'll have love. Um, it's actually about how you develop the capacity, the, what he calls the facility, to be loving in the world. Um, and that it's kind of, it's very much a leap of faith um, that you will be loved back once you are more skilled at being loving yourself. So it's really quite a sophisticated layout in the book, the theory and practice of how to be loving. There's a there's an interesting introduction, and it can be really help you. It can really help you get an overview of where from is coming, coming from, <laughs> um, to read someone else's view of of how from came to write what he wrote. And I won't go into that because I think it just takes away talking about how someone else's way of thinking about from takes away from a focus on from himself. But I did find it find it really useful a way of getting my bearings on what Fromm's main arguments were, um, and so we we'll just leave that and uh, knowing that it's useful if you do pick up the book. That's uh, this is this version has a two thousand and six commentary by Peter Kramer. Okay, so come to the preface and just a couple of comments out of that. And as much as possible, as I was saying, I will read in a non-sexist way and do my best with that. Um, the reading, and this is this is from in the preface, the reading of this book would be a disappointing experience for anyone who expects easy instruction in the art of loving. This book, on the contrary, wants to show that love is not a sentiment that can be easily indulged in by anyone, regardless of level of maturity reached by them. It wants to convince the reader that all our attempts for love are bound to fail unless we try most actively to develop our total personality, so as to, to achieve a productive orientation. That satisfaction in individual love cannot be attained without the capacity to love one's neighbour without true humility, courage, faith and discipline. In a culture in which these capacities are rare, he's talking about Western capitalist cultures, the attainment of capacity to love must remain a rare achievement. Or anyone can ask themselves how many truly loving people do they know. So this is setting the scene for how he proceeds, coming through the preface to the first chapter which is on Is Love an Art? Is love an art? Then it requires knowledge and effort. Is love a pleasant sensation, which to experience is a matter of chance, something one falls into if one is lucky? This little book is based on the former presence premise, which undoubtedly the majority of people today totally believe in the latter. Not that people think that love is not important. They are starved for it. They watch endless numbers of films about happy and unhappy love stories. They listen to hundreds of trashy songs about love. Yet hardly anyone thinks that there is anything that needs to be learned about love. This peculiar attitude is based on several premises which either singly or combined tend to uphold it. Most people see the problem of love primarily as that of being loved rather than that of loving, of one's capacity to love. Hence the problem to them is how to be loved, how to be lovable. In, the, in, this, in pursuit of this aim, they follow several paths. One which is especially used by men is to be successful, to be powerful and rich as the social margin of one's position permits. Another, especially 
used by women is to make oneself attractive by cultivating one's body, dress, etc. Other ways of making oneself attractive used by both men and women are to develop pleasant manners, interesting conversation, to be helpful, modest, inoffensive. Many of the ways to make oneself lovable are the same as those used to make oneself successful, to win friends and influence people. As a matter of fact, what most people in our culture mean by being lovable is essentially a mixture between being popular and having sex appeal. A second premise behind the attitude that there is nothing to be learned about love is the assumption that the problem of love is the problem of an object, not the problem of faculty or ability. People think that to love is simple, that but that to find the right object to love or to be loved by is difficult. He goes on to explain why we have come to have a materialistic, consumer-oriented notion of objects um, and how that can really sidetrack us from the notion of love as faculty. I won't go into the detail of that. Um, Just to catch it in one point, which is on page three, in a culture which is market or marketing orientation prevails and in which material success is the outstanding value, there is little reason to be surprised that human love relations follow the same pattern of exchange which governs the commodity and, and the labour market. The third error leading to the assumption that there is nothing to be learned about love lies in the confusion between the initial experience of falling in love and the permanent state of being in love, as or as we might better say, of standing in love. If two people who have been strangers, as we all are, suddenly let the wall between them break down and feel close, feel one, this moment of oneness is one of the most exhilarating, most exciting experiences in life. It is all the more wonderful and miraculous for persons who have been shut off and isolated without love. This miracle of sudden intimacy is often facilitated if it is combined with or initiated by sexual attraction and consummation. However, this type of love is by its very nature not lasting. I just go to another section. Um, yet in the beginning, they do not know this, that it does not last. In fact, they take the intensity of the infatuation, this being crazy about each other, for proof of the intensity of their love, while it might only prove the degree of their preceding loneliness. This attitude that nothing is easier than love has continued to be prevalent, about, uh, be the prevalent idea about love in spite of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. There is hardly any activity, any enterprise, which is started with such tremendous hopes and expectations and yet which fails so regularly as love. If this were the case with any other activity, people would be eager to know the reasons for the failure and to learn how one could do better, or they would give up the activity. Since the latter is impossible in the case of love, there seems to be only one adequate way to overcome the failure of love, to examine the reasons for this failure and to proceed to study the meanings of love. 
The first step to take is to become aware that love is an art, just as living is an art. If you want to learn how to love, we must proceed in the same way we have to proceed if we want to learn any other art, say music, painting, carpentry, or the art of medicine or engineering. This is on page five. So what are the necessary steps in learning any art? The process of learning an art can be divided conveniently into two parts, the mastery of the theory and the mastery of the practice. And he goes on to give examples in different professions of how that is so. Coming forward, first of all, to his theory of love. um, And he spends some time um, in the first part of the chapter called Theory of Love in talking about his understanding of of theory of humanity, um, which I won't go into because it becomes evident in how how he speaks, what, how he understands it, rather than going directly there. But one of the key points he makes, which is on page nine, is the awareness of human separation without reunion by love is the source of shame. It is, a, is at the same time the source of guilt and anxiety. So he was using the example of Adam and Eve from the Christian uh, religion um, of the shaming that happened in the Garden of Eden. Um, He goes on to say, the deepest need of man, humans, then, is the need to overcome our separateness, to leave the prison of our loneliness. The absolute failure to achieve this means insanity because the panic of complete isolation can be overcome only by such radical withdrawal from the world outside that the feeling of separation disappears because the world outside from which one is separated has disappeared. So, sorry, this has kind of gone complicated quite quickly, hasn't it? Humans of all ages and cultures are confronted with the solution of one and the same question. The question of how to overcome separateness, how to achieve union, how to transcend one's own individual life and find at one So he goes on to give an historical account around all of that, some of which I find a little bit um, perplexing and not necessarily that I agree with, but just coming through a a few pages here, I want to keep the focus much on how he understands love, not necessarily how he, he sees the historical development of humanity. So on page 19, um, after he's been talking about um, the different, the more uh, dominant ways of people understanding love as a symbiosis of um, give and take in a kind of more of a transactional way. He says that in contrast to symbiotic union, mature love is union under the condition of preserving one's integrity, one's individuality. Love is an active power in humans, a power which breaks through the walls, which separate people from each other, which unites people with others love makes people overcome the sense of isolation and separation yet it permits them to be themselves to retain our integrity in love the paradox occurs that two beings become one yet remain two you'll see that he when he's talking about love he does tend to talk about in the interpersonal sense um, and that's a psychological flavor to his work but he's definitely also holds this sense that love is very much shaped uh, by the society and culture in which we live 
But I do find it helpful, actually, to think of love more in that interpersonal interaction to try and get hold of some of the complex, um, certainly psychological dimensions of love. And on page 21, he makes another comment directly about love. Love is an activity, not a passive affect. It is a standing in, not a falling for. In the most general way, the active character of love can be described by stating that love is primarily giving, not receiving. And Fromm goes on to talk about the giving and receiving um, idea, uh, which is really really quite complicated but it's it's definitely um the philosophy of giving without expecting or demanding something back in return it's not a not giving as a transactional um relationship a little fragment of what he says on page 22 is in the sphere of material things giving means being rich not not those who have much as rich but those who give much the most important sphere of giving, however, is not that of material things, but lies in the specifically human realm. What does one person give to another? They give of themselves, of the most precious that one has, which is one's life. This does not necessarily mean that they sacrifice their life for the other, but that they give of themselves that which is alive in them. They give of themselves their joy, their interest and their understanding, their knowledge, their humour, their sadness of all expressions and manifestations of that which are alive in them. Specifically with regard to love, this means love is a power which produces love. Impotence is the inability to produce love. So I've skipped a little section in there, so I hope that's holding together as a point of view. Just coming over the page, page 24, it is hardly necessary to stress the fact that the ability to love is an act of giving, as an act of giving depends on the character development of the person. It presupposes the attainment of a predominantly productive orientation. In this orientation, the person has overcome dependency, narcissistic omnipotence, the wish to exploit others or to hoard, and has acquired faith in their own human powers, courage to rely on their powers in the attainment of their goals. To the degree that these qualities are lacking, they are afraid of giving of themselves and hence of loving. Beyond the element of giving, the active character of love becomes evident in the fact that it is always implies certain basic elements common to all forms of love. This is on page 24. These common elements in all forms of love are care, responsibility, respect and knowledge. And he goes on to describe each of those in some detail, which I won't do here. Um, except for some fragments as we come to them. He, gives, he does talk quite a bit about the example of the mother's love for her child as an example of care. I have a little bit of difficulty with the focus on mother's love um, as, in that sense that it could be an exclusive language, but um, I think if we think of the ability to love a child as a way of trying to understand what how he understands care in love, coming forward to page 26, Care and concern imply another aspect of love, that of responsibility. 
Today, responsibility is often meant to denote duty, something imposed upon one from the outside. But responsibility in its true sense is an entirely voluntary act. It is my response to the needs, expressed or unexpressed, of another human being. To be responsible means to be ready and able to respond. Responsibility could easily deteriorate into domination and possessiveness were it not for the third component of love, respect. Respect is not fear and awe. It denotes in accordance with the root of the word to look at the ability to see the person as they are, to be aware of their unique individuality. Respect means the concern that the other person should grow and unfold as they are. Respect thus implies the absence of exploitation. If I love the other person, I feel one with them or her with them, but with them as they are, not as I need them to be as an object for my use. Respect exists only on the basis of freedom. Love is the, free, is the child of freedom, never that of domination. To respect a person is not possible without knowing them. Care and responsibility would be blind if they were not guided by knowledge. Knowledge would be empty if it were not motivated by concern. There are many layers of knowledge. The knowledge which is an aspect of love is one which does not stay in the periphery but penetrates to the core. It is possible only when I can transcend the concern for myself and see the other person on their own terms. <laughs> knowledge has one more fundamental relationship to the problem of love. The basic need to fuse with another person so as to transcend the prison of one's separateness is closely related to another specifically human desire. While life is merely a biological aspects as in its mainly biological aspects, is a miracle and a secret. Human in their human aspects, humans in their human aspects are an unfathomable secret to themselves. We know ourselves, yet even with all the efforts we may make, we do not know ourselves. We know our fellow humans, and yet we do not know them, because we are not a thing and our fellow human is not a thing. The further we reach into the depth of our being or someone else's being, the more the goal of knowledge eludes us. Yet we cannot help desiring to penetrate in the secret of the human, other human souls. The other path of knowing which avoids exploitation and over over attachment with a person um, is no, to knowing the secret is love. Love is the active penetration of the other person which my desire to know is stilled by union. In the act of fusion, I know you, I know myself, I know everybody and I know nothing. I know in the only way knowledge of that which is alive is possible for humans by experience of union, not by any knowledge our thought can give. Sadism is motivated by the wish to know the secret, yet I will remain ignorant as ignorant as I was before. I've torn, I have torn the other being apart limb by limb, yet I have done so, it so as to destroy him. 
Love is the only way of knowledge, which in the act of union answers my quest. In the act of loving, of giving myself, in the act of penetrating other person, I find myself, I discover myself, I discover both of us. So a little bit further on page nine, um, the only way of full knowledge lies in the act of love. This act transcends thought, it transcends words. It's a daring plunge into the experience of union. Hence, knowledge in thought, that is psychological knowledge, is a necessary condition for full knowledge in the act of love. I have to know the other person and myself objectively in order to be able to see their reality or rather to overcome the illusions and the irrationally distorted picture I have of them. Only if I know a human being objectively can I know them in their ultimate sense in the act of love. It's quite quite complicated um, and the language of penetration I find rather rather concerning is that you have to really listen to all of what he's saying there about responsibility and it definitely is not an exploitative um, sense of union with another person. Uh, From goes on to speak quite a bit about the relationship between a parent and a child um, and I'm just going to and I get some better summative comments in a little moment so I won't go through that intense detail there because we can get a bit um, lost with it really when I'm really wanting to capture the more direct language about love to tease out that concept in particular not necessarily all the examples he's giving so on page 43 there's a section called the objects of love love is not primarily a relationship to a specific person it is an attitude an orientation of character which determines the relatedness of a person to the world as a whole, not to one object of love. If a person loves only one other person and is indifferent to the rest of their fellow human beings, their love is not love but a symbiotic attachment or an enlarged egotism. Yet most people believe that love is constituted by the object and not by the faculty. In fact, they may even believe that it is a proof of the intensity of their love when they do not love anybody except the love person. This is the same fallacy which we have already mentioned because one does not see that love is an activity, a power of the soul. One believes that all that is necessary is to find the right object and that everything goes by itself afterward. This attitude can be compared to that of a person who wants to paint, but who, instead of learning the art, claims that they just have to wait for the right object and that they will paint beautifully when they find it. If I truly love one person, I love all persons, I love the world, I love life. If I can say to somebody, I love you, I must be able to say, I love in you everybody, I love through you the world, I love in you also myself. Saying that love is an orientation which refers to all other, to all and not one, does not imply, however, the idea that there are no differences between the various types of love, which depend on the kind of object which is loved. And and from goes on to actually talk about brotherly love, motherly love, erotic love, self-love, and love of God. 
Uh, and I'll just make some very brief comments about each of those. Um, page 43 still, um, brotherly love, which I believe um, is very similar to agape. Um, I have a little bit of trouble with the concept of brotherly love, but um, I, I agree with how he understands um, this idea of love. The most fundamental kind of love which underlies all types of love is brotherly love. By this, I mean the sense of responsibility, care, respect, knowledge of any other human being that wish to further their life. This is the kind of love the Bible speaks of when it says, love thyself as thy, love thy neighbor as thyself. Brotherly love is a love for all human beings. It is characterized by its very lack of exclusiveness. If I have developed the capacity for love, then I cannot help loving my brothers and sisters. If brotherly love, in brotherly love, there is an experience of union with all people, all of human solidarity, of human at one moment. Brotherly love is based on the experience that we are one. The differences in talents, intelligence, knowledge are negligible in comparison with the identity of the human core common to all people. Brotherly love is love between equals, but indeed, even as equals, we're not always equal, insomuch as we are human and we all are all in need of help. Today I, tomorrow you. But this need of help does not mean that one is helpless, the other powerful. Helplessness is a transitory condition. The ability to stand and walk on one's own feet is the permanent and common one. Yet the love of the helpless one, love of the poor and the stranger are the beginning of brotherly love. To love one's flesh and blood is no achievement. The animal loves its young and cares for them. The helpless one loves their master since their life depends on it. The child loves their parents since they need them. Only in the love of those who do not serve a purpose, love begins to unfold. And talks about motherly love, page 46. In contrast to brotherly love and erotic love, which are love between equals, the relationship of mother and child is by its very nature one of inequality, where one needs all the help and the other gives it. It is for this altruistic, unselfish character that motherly love has been considered the highest kind of love and the most sacred of all emotional bonds. And he goes on to talk about the complexities and challenges of that motherly love. And coming a little couple of pages later to erotic love, where um, from makes some summative comments about the different types of love, which I find helpful. Uh, brotherly love is love among equals. Motherly love is love for the helpless. Different as they are from each other, they have in common that they are by their very nature not restricted to one person. If I love my brother, I love all my brothers. If I love my child, I love all my children. No, beyond that, I love all children, all that are in need of my help. In contrast to both types of love is erotic love. It is the craving for complete fusion, for union with one other person. It is by its very nature exclusive and not universal. It is perhaps the most deceptive form of love there is. 
First of all, it is often confused with the explosive experience of falling in love, the sudden collapse of the barriers which existed until that moment between two strangers. But as was pointed out before, this experience of sudden intimacy is by its very nature short-lived. I don't go on to say much more about what he says about erotic love, uh, coming through to self-love. While it, while it raises no objection to apply the concept of love to various objects, it is a widespread belief that while it is virtuous to love others, it is sinful to love oneself. It is assumed that to the degree to which I love myself, I do not love others, that self-love is the same as selfishness. This view goes far back in Western thought. Calvin speaks of self-love as a pest. Freud speaks of self-love in psychiatric terms, but nevertheless his value judgment is the same as that of Calvin. For him, self-love is the same as narcissism, the turning of the libido toward oneself. Narcissism is the earliest stage in human development. This is according to Fromm, and the person who in later life has turned to this narcissistic stage has returned to this narcissistic stage is incapable of love. In the extreme case, he is insane. Freud assumes that love is the manifestation of libido and that the libido is either turned towards others' love or towards, towards oneself, self-love. Love and self-love are thus mutually exclusive in the sense that the more, one, more of one, the less there is of the other. If self-love is bad, it follows that unselfishness is virtuous. So Fromm goes on to argue that self-love is crucial for all other loves. And at the bottom of page 54, so therefore he is not agreeing with um, Freud's point of view here. <clears throat> what am I, page 54? Love thy, uh, the idea expressed in the biblical love thyself as thy neighbour implies that, implies that respect for one's own integrity and uniqueness, love for and understanding of one's own self cannot be separated from respect and love and understanding for another individual. The love of my own self is inseparably connected with the love for any other being. Love in, love in principle is indivisible as far as the connection between objects and one's own self is concerned. Genuine love is an expression of productiveness and implies care, respect, responsibility and knowledge. It is not an affect in the sense of being affected by somebody, but an active striving for the growth and happiness of the loved person rooted in one's own capacity to love. To love somebody is the actualization and concentration of the power to love. The basic affirmation contained in love is directed toward the beloved person as an incarnation of essentially human qualities. Love of one person implies the love of all humans as such. The kind of division of labour, as William James calls it, by which one loves one's family but is without feeling for the stranger, is a sign of a basic inability to love. Love of, of human is not, as is frequently supposed, an abstraction coming after the love for a specific person, but it is its premise, although genetic, genetically it is required in the loving in loving specific individuals. 
from this it follows that my own self must be as much an object of my love as another person. The affirmation of one's own life, happiness, growth and freedom is rooted in one's capacity to love, that is, in care, respect, responsibility and knowledge. If an individual is able to love productively, they love themselves too. If they can only love others, they cannot love at all. I think there's some really valuable commentary there that I find I just really want to keep reflecting on. It is, it is true that the selfish persons are incapable of loving others, that they're not capable of loving themselves either. Interesting point about unselfishness. And just going over some pages, um, we're talking about the love of God and just not wanting to say a lot in this space because it's very, very complicated what he goes on to say in this space. But just an opening comment and really need to read this um, in more detail to get the gist of what he's saying. It has been stated above that the basis for our need to love lies in the experience of separateness and the resulting need to overcome the anxiety of separateness by the experience of union. The religious form of love, which is called the love of God, is psychologically speaking not different. It springs from the need to overcome separateness and to achieve union. In fact, the love of God has as many different qualities and aspects as the love of humans has, and to a large extent we can find the same differences. In all theistic religions, whether they are polytheistic or monotheistic, God stands for the highest value, the most desirable good. Hence, the specific meaning of God depends on what is most desirable for the most desirable good for a person. The understanding of the concept of God must therefore start with an analysis of the character structure of the person who worships God, and that's quite a lot of what Fromm goes on to talk about and gives um, a developed historical perspective on the development of thinking around how how people relate to God um, across Eastern and Western philosophies. And just as a summary comment on page 74, in the dominant Western religious system, the love of God is essentially the same as a belief in God, in God's existence, God's justice, God's love. The love of God is essentially a thought experience. In the Eastern religions and in mysticism, the love of God is an intense feeling experience of oneness, inseparably linked with the expression of this love in every act of living. The most radical formulation has been given to this goal by Master Eckhart, who says, If therefore I am changed into God and he makes me one with himself, then by the living God there is no distinction between us. Some people imagine that they're going to see God, that they are going to see God as if he were standing yonder and they here, but it is not to be so. God and I, we are one. By knowing God, I take him to myself. By loving God, I penetrate him. This is from Mr. Eckhart's uh, quote. Okay, so just some fragments from the different types of love uh, from from there and 
encourage you, if you're interested, to read those in more depth. My particular purpose is trying to tease out how he understands love rather than give the full sense of what all his arguments are. And chapter three, as I said before, called Love and its Disintegration in Contemporary Western Society is not is not the chapter I'm going to mm-hmm. spend time with, but it is really interesting to understand um, how from understands love in its social, historical and political context. Um, but I will just read on page 77 some opening comments to that chapter. If love is the capacity of the mature productive character, it follows that the capacity to love is an individual living in any given culture depends on the influence this culture has on the character of the average person. If we speak about love in contemporary Western culture, we mean to ask the social whether the social structure of Western civilization and the spirit resulting from it are conducive to the development of love. To raise the question is to give it in the negative, give the answer in the negative. No objective observer of our Western life can doubt that love, brotherly love, motherly love and erotic love is a relatively rare phenomenon and that its place is taken by a number of forms of pseudo-love, which are in reality so many forms of disintegration of love. So that's pretty big argument that from places there and he goes on to give an analysis of capitalism at least in the middle as he understood it in the mid last century and it still has a lot that rings true Um, coming forward um, right through that chapter it's quite uh, to the last chapter which i think is a really interesting one where having outlined the main ideas of love he talks about what the practice of love can look like Um, And as I said before, he's not offering a blueprint of how to be loving in the world, but the principles, again, or or the actions, again, are really interesting, I think. Having dealt with the theoretical aspect of the art of loving, we're now confronted with a much more difficult problem, that of the practice of the art of loving. Can anything be learned about the practice of an art except by practicing it? Um, He kind of says that really you have to practice it and he's not trying to tell you how to do that but he um and he's not giving you prescriptions but uh, let's just come over what he does try to do though and he mentions some page 99 what the discussion of the practice of love can do is to discuss the premises of the art of loving the approaches to it as it were the practices of these premises and approaches The steps toward the goal can be practiced only by oneself and the discussion ends before the decisive step is taken. And of course, the decisive step is back to us. (laughs) Okay, so the practice of any art has certain general requirements. And so this is quite interesting how he, first of all, identifies the requirements to any practice of any art. Um, And then he comes to the specific qualities required or capacities required for the art of loving. So on page 100, he identifies the first um, practice the the first requirement for any art and that is discipline i shall never be good at anything if i do not do it in a disciplined way anything i do only do if i am in the mood may be a nice or amusing hobby but i shall never become a master in that art 
But the problem is not only that the discipline in the practice of particular art, but that it is the discipline in one's whole life. One might think that nothing is easier to learn for modern humans than to than discipline. However, uh, with without discipline, life becomes shattered, chaotic, and lacks in concentration. So concentration is the second capacity that is needed for any art form, including the art of loving. That concentration is a necessary condition in the mastery of the art of loving is hardly necessary to prove. Anyone who's ever tried to learn an art knows this. Yet even more than self-discipline, concentration is rare in our culture. On the contrary, our culture leads to an unconcerted and diffused modern life. On unconcentrated, sorry, and diffused modern life, hardly paralleled anywhere else. You do many things at once. You read, listen to the radio, talk, smoke, eat, drink. You are the consumer with the open mouth, eager and ready to swallow everything, pictures, liquor, knowledge. This lack of concentration is clearly shown in our difficulty in being alone with ourselves. And coming through, he makes some comments about that difficulty of just sitting and being with ourselves. The third factor in the art, in any art, in practicing any art, is the art of patience. Anyone who's ever tried to master an art knows that patience is necessary if you want to achieve anything. If one is after quick results, one never learns an art. But the practice of patience is as difficult to practice as discipline and concentration for the modern human. And he goes on to say why that is so. Eventually, a condition of learning any art is a supreme concern with the mastery of art. If the art is not something of supreme importance, the apprentice will never learn. They will remain at best a good dilettante, but they will never become a master. This condition of really placing at supreme importance, love is supreme importance, is necessary for the art of love as for any other art. It seems as though, as if the proportion between masters and dilettantes is heavily weighted in the favor of dilettantes in the art of loving than is the case with other arts. One more point that must be made with regard to the general conditions of learning an art. One does not begin to learn an art directly, but indirectly, as it were. One must learn a great number of other and seemingly disconnected things before one starts with the art itself. An apprentice in carpentry begins by learning how to plane wood. An apprentice in the art of piano playing begins by practicing scales. An apprentice in the art of Zen art of archery begins by doing breathing exercises. If one wants to become a master in any art, one's whole life must be devoted to it or at least related to it. One's own person becomes an instrument in the practice of the art and must be kept fit according to the specific functions it has to fulfill. With regard to the art of loving, this means that anyone who aspires to become a master of this art must begin by practicing discipline, concentration and patience throughout every phase of their lives.
And Rom explains that he thinks that um, concentration is one of the most difficult to practice in our culture. The most in, in, says the most important step in learning concentration is to learn to be alone with oneself without reading, listening to the radio, smoking or drinking. Indeed, to be able to concentrate means to be able to be alone with oneself. And this is precisely the ability um, that is needed for being able to love. It's paradoxically, the ability to be alone is a condition for the ability to love. Anyone who tries to be alone with themselves will discover how difficult it is. They will begin to feel restless, fidgety, and even to sense considerable anxiety. And, and he goes on in that vein. Another interesting point that he makes a little way on about concentration as part of what's required to be able to love um, is this point on page 105. To be concentrated in relation to others means primarily to be able to listen. Most people listen to others or even give advice without really listening. They do not take the other person's talk seriously. They do not take their own answers seriously either. As a result, the talk makes them tired. They are under the illusion that they would be even more tired if they listened with concentration, but the opposite is true. The activity, if done in a concentrated fashion, makes one more awake, while every unconcentrated activity makes one sleepy, while at the same time it makes it difficult to fall asleep at the end of the day. An important next point he adds to what's needed to be able to practice being loving. One cannot learn to concentrate without becoming sensitive to oneself. What does this mean? One should think about oneself or, or should one think about oneself all the time, analyze oneself or what? If we were talk, talking about being sensitive to a machine, there would be little difficulty in explaining what is meant. Anybody, for instance, who drives a car is sensitive to it. If we look at the situation of being sensitive to another human being, we find the most obvious example is in the sensitiveness and responsiveness of the mother to her baby. Moving on, not going into the detail of that, just just, just holding that idea of a responsiveness to the other. The average person has a sensitivity towards his bodily processes. They notice changes or even small amounts of pain. This kind of bodily sensitivity is relatively easy to experience because most persons have an image of how it feels to be well. The same sensitivity towards one's mental processes is much more difficult because many people have never known a person who functions optimally. There are many people, for instance, who have never seen a loving person or a person with integrity or courage or, or concentration. It's quite obvious that in order to be sensitive to oneself, one has to have an image of complete healthy human functioning and how one is to acquire such an experience. How are one, how, how is one to acquire such an experience if one has not had it in their own childhood or later in life? Thus far, I've discussed what is needed for the practice of any art. This on page 109. 
Now I shall discuss those qualities which are a specific significance for the ability to love. According to what I said about the nature of love, the main condition of the achievement of love is the overcoming of one's narcissism. The narcissistic orientation is one in which one experiences as real only that which exists within oneself. While the phenomena in the outside world have no reality in themselves, but are experienced only from the point of view of their being useful or dangerous to me. The opposite pole to narcissism is objectivity. It is the faculty to see people and things as they are, objectively, and to be able to separate this objective picture from a picture which is formed by one's own desires and fears. All forms of psychosis show the inability to be objective to an extreme degree. The insane person or the dreamer fails completely in having an objective view of the world outside, but all of us are more or less insane or more or less asleep, and all of us have an unobjective view of the world, one which is distorted by our narcissistic orientation. So this idea of objectivity um, can be quite challenging to think about because we go to this kind of notion of um, the expert and the all-knowing observer of a situation, but it's actually not quite what Fromm means. On page 111, he goes into a little bit further what's required to be able to be objective. The faculty to think objectively is reason. The emotional attitude behind reason is that of humility. To be objective, to use one's reason, is possible only if one has achieved an attitude of humility. If one has emerged from the dreams of omnipotence and om omniscience, which one has as a child. In terms of this discussion of the practice of art of loving, this love, this means love being dependent on the relative absence of narcissism. It requires the development of humility, objectivity and reason. One's whole life must be, must be devoted to this aim. Humility and objectivity are indivisible, just as love is. I cannot be truly objective about my family if I cannot be objective about the stranger and vice versa. If I want to learn the art of loving, I must strive for objectivity in every situation and become sensitive to the situations where I'm not objective. I must try to see the difference between my picture of a person and their behaviour as it is narcissistically distorted and the person's reality as it exists regardless of my interest, needs and fears. To have acquired the capacity for objectivity and reason is half the road to achieving the art of loving, but it must be acquired with regard to everybody with whom one comes into contact. If someone would want to reserve their objectivity for the loved person and think they can dispense with it in their relationships to the rest of the world, they will soon discover that they fail both here and there. The ability to love depends on one's ability to emerge from narcissism and from the ancestral's fixation to mother and clan. It depends on our ability to grow, to develop a productive orientation in our relationship toward the world and ourselves. This process of emergence, of birth, of waking up, requires one quality as a necessary condition, faith. The practice of the art of loving requires the practice of faith. 
goes on to say a little later that he's not talking about um, irrational faith or anything goes kind of faith, but he's actually talking about rational faith, which is a conviction rooted in one's own experience of thought and feeling. Rational faith is not primarily belief in something, but the quality of certainty and firmness which our convictions have. Faith is a character trait pervading the whole personality rather than a specific belief. Rational faith is rooted in productive intellectual and emotional activity. In rational thinking, in which faith is supposed to have no faith, no place, rational faith is an important component. Goes on to talk about the history of science and the place of rationality in, in science. And I'm just going to come over a little way. Uh, page 116. The basis of rational faith is productiveness. To live by our faith means to live productively. It follows that the belief in power in the sense of domination and the use of power are the reverse of faith. To believe in power that exists is identical with disbelief in the growth of potentialities which are yet to be realised. It is a prediction of the future based solely on the manifest present, but it turns out to be a grave miscalculation, profoundly irrational in its oversight of human potentialities and human growth. There is no rational faith in power. There is submission to it on the part of those who have it, the wish to keep it. While to many power seems to be the most real of all things, the history of humans has proven it to be the most unstable of all human achievements. Because of the fact that faith and power are mutually exclusive, all religions and political systems, which originally are built on rational faith, become corrupt and eventually lose what strength they have if they rely on power or ally themselves with it. To have faith requires courage, the ability to take a risk, the readiness even to accept pain and disappointment. Whoever insists on safety and security as primary conditions of life cannot have faith. Valuing. Okay. Okay, I'm trying to work here. It can work against that very principle of valuing um, love uh, as, as more important than what we achieve um, in a material sense. So what he's saying here is that the principle underlying capitalist society and the principle of love are incompatible. But modern society, nevertheless, is seen concrete, when seen concretely, is a complex phenomenon. A sales of, salesman of a useless commodity, for instance, cannot function economically without lying. A skilled worker, a chemist or a physician can. Similarly, a farmer, worker or teacher, and many a type of business person, can try to practice love without ceasing to function economically. Even if one recognises the principle of capitalism as being incompatible with the principle of love, one must admit that capitalism in itself is complex and constantly changing structure, which still permits of a good deal of nonconformity and of personal latitude. In saying this, however, I do not wish to imply that we can expect the present social system to continue indefinitely and at the same time to hope for the realisation of the love ideal of love for one's brother. 
People capable of love under the present system are necessarily the exceptions. Love is by necessity a marginal phenomenon in present-day Western society. Not so much because many occupations would not permit of a loving attitude, but because the spirit of production-centred, commodity-greedy society is such that only the non-conformists can defend themselves successfully against it. Those who are seriously concerned with love as the only rational answer to the problem of human existence must then arrive at the conclusion that important and radical changes in our social structure are necessary if love is to become a social and not a highly individualistic, marginalised phenomenon. The direction of such changes within the scope of this book only were hinted at. Our society is run by a managerial bureaucracy, by professional politicians. People are motivated by mass suggestion. Their aim is producing more and consuming more as purposes in themselves. All activities are subordinated to economic goals. Means have become ends. Humans are an automation, well-fed, well-clad, but without any ultimate concern for that which their peculiarly human quality and function, that is their peculiarly human quality and function. If to be human is to be able to love, they must put themselves in this supreme place. The economic machine must serve humans rather than they serve it. They must be enabled to share experience to share work rather than at least share in profits. Society must be organised in such a way that human social loving nature is not separated from their social existence but becomes one with it. If it is true, as I've tried to show, that love is the only sane and satisfactory answer to the problem of human existence, then any society which excludes relatively the development of love must in the long run perish of its own contradiction with the basic necessities of human nature. Indeed, to speak of love is not preaching for the simple reason that it means to speak of the ultimate and real need in every human being. That this need has been obscured does not mean it does not exist. To analyse the nature of love is to discover its general absence today and to criticise the social conditions which are responsible for this absence. To have faith in the possibility of love as a social and not only exceptional individual phenomenon is a rational faith, faith based on the insight into the very nature of humans. And that... On page 123, that was Fromm's wrap-up of his argument about the importance of love um, as a practice and how difficult it is to do in some some social conditions and political conditions. And what I wanted to say in wrapping up is that while I don't agree with everything he says, um, and obviously um, not pretending to have done justice to his all his arguments, by focusing on, on the explicit comments around love, I do think his contribution continues to be really important in contemporary times. And I wanted to particularly acknowledge him um, as well because I know that uh, Bell Hooks really draws on his ideas of the, t- the, the meaning of love and the social nature of love and the potential of love. Um, and 
for me, it's always interesting to learn more about the author of the book as well, to understand why they are writing and thinking like they are. And I'm, I'm going off to do a lot more in-depth reading about Eric Fromm and the people in his life who influenced his thinking as part of my current um, research and understanding of love and how in its absence we can often still learn some really important things about it. Okay, I hope it wasn't too fragmented when I was moving through um, large amounts of his writing and that you gained something of value from it. And, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this commentary by me. And thank you. And I hope you will take care. Bye.